I think I mentioned before that in between 8th and 9th grades, my family moved from the San Francisco Bay Area to rural Michigan, which was a bit of a culture shock. It was my first big move, and of course, making friends is at the top of your mind in that sort of situation. Well, it just so happened that a girl who was in my same grade moved with her family to the same small town in West Michigan that same summer, and our dads worked together, and we ended up at the same church youth group, and so we became really close friends. Best friends, actually. Looking back, I was definitely in what is now referred to as the friend zone, but that's another story. The first two years of high school, we were basically inseparable. We talked about everything, you know, all the stuff that friends do. Getting into all the details of this story would take way too long, but suffice it to say that there was an issue that I knew really mattered to her. It was really, really important. And partly because I knew it mattered to her so much, and therefore knew that the truth would really upset her, I started to lie to her about it. And it was the usual story. One lie leads to another, leads to another, to try and cover up the original lie. And after a while, I was so far down the lying trail that it was really only a matter of time before she found out. It happened the summer between sophomore and junior years. We were at our church summer camp, and the lie got exposed, and it was devastating for her. I have a vivid memory of standing outside the girl's cabin that evening, listening to her sobbing harder than I have ever heard anyone sob before or since. And our friendship, it was never the same. We were still friends, we still hung out sometimes, still talked, but it never went back to being the way it had once been. I imagine many of you have had experiences like that, where sometimes, like in my story, because of your own personal failures, but sometimes through no fault of your own, a relationship that was so, so important to you just crumbled and never got built back up again. It was never the same. And maybe as a result of those scars, some of us live in fear that that might happen in our current relationships, that we might ruin a relationship that we cherish, that we might misstep drive the person away, be too much or too needy or too something, and it'll all be over. No going back. We have this sense that we have to perform, that if we are found lacking, not enough or too much or whatever, that we'll be dropped out of the other person's life. Some of us sometimes look at our relationship with God like that because of the relationships that we have had fail in our own personal lives. Maybe even a relationship with a parent or a spouse where if we didn't perform, a relationship that was supposed to last forever suffered. And sometimes we come to believe that God is also looking for any excuse to drop us, move away from us, distance God's self from us. And books like Jeremiah can sometimes feed into that idea. After all, chapter after chapter is warning about the dire consequences of Israel's sin that they have moved away from God, and now God is moving away from them, that the destruction of their nation, their lives, their families, and, yes, their relationship with Yahweh is coming. It's coming. It's coming. The relentlessness of the message can make us feel as if, well, if we slip up, God might be coming for us, too. But what we're going to talk about today is how that perspective on Jeremiah, while totally understandable, is, in fact, a misunderstanding of the core message of Jeremiah. It is a misreading of the core logic of the whole prophetic ministry in the Bible, by which I mean God's logic in sending the prophets to bring God's message to the people. Why would God do that in the first place? What was the purpose? In Jeremiah 26, we see that logic spelled out for us. And it's actually kind of the opposite of, if you mess up, God is coming for you. In verses 1 to 6, we read, At the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this message came from Yahweh. Yahweh has said this, Stand in the courtyard of Yahweh's house 
and speak to all Judah's cities, to people coming to bow down in Yahweh's house, all the words that I'm commanding you to speak to them. Don't omit a thing. So this is a pretty standard beginning to Jeremiah's messages. God has put this word into his mouth and he has to speak it. And why? Verse 3, perhaps they will listen and turn each from his evil way, and I'll relent regarding the evil that I'm intending to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. You're to say to them, Yahweh has said this, if you don't listen to me by walking according to the teaching that I've set in front of you, listening to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I've been sending to you, sending them urgently, but you haven't listened, then I'll make this house like Shiloh and make this city a humiliation to all the nations of the earth. If this message sounds somewhat familiar, that's because we've heard it before, often, especially in chapter 7. In fact, many scholars believe that the poetic sermon we find in chapter 7, which says it was delivered in the temple, is the full content of the sermon that this story in chapter 26 refers to. Like so much in Jeremiah, it's cyclical. We're swooping back around again to the same message. Also, based on the timeline we see here, during the reign of Jehoiakim, Jeremiah is decades into his run as a prophet, trying to get the people to listen. And it's worth pausing here about halfway through this book that we're making our way through to ask why. Why is this book so repetitive? Why on earth can't this book just say it once and then get on with it? I thought papyrus was like a valuable material not to be wasted in the ancient world or something. One possible answer is that the editors of this book are dumb and just bad writers. Like they don't notice how dull and repetitive this all is or something. I'm joking, kind of. Although this is actually one of the common assumptions of a lot of late 20th century biblical scholarship. Like if you read the academically minded modern biblical scholars, a good chunk of it boils down to, well, yes, these uneducated, benighted ancients might have believed that a that a baby could be born to a virgin <laughs> or a person could be raised from the dead. But we, we enlightened moderns with our scientific understanding of the world, no that those things are impossible. (laughs) One of the reasons I enjoy the scholar N.T. Wright is that one of the main themes in his more scholarly books boils down to, you know, people 2,000 years ago, they also knew that dead people don't come back to life, actually. Even without science, can you believe? So perhaps they might have, you know, actually meant what they said. But anyhow, back to Jeremiah. I don't buy the, the editors of the book didn't know what they were doing line of reasoning. So then, why is it so repetitive? I think there are three main reasons, and we're going to deal with them from least important to most important. First, it's historically accurate. I think Jeremiah actually did go around saying the same things over and over and over and over and over again. We see the same thing with Jesus. Why, out of all the things he did, do the Gospels have some of the same stories and the same content? Probably because he went from town to town saying and doing largely similar things. His message was his message just like it is for Jeremiah. It's repetitive because Jeremiah was repetitive. Second, kind of medium importance, I think it's repetitive because God knows what God is doing. We have a whole bunch of educators in our church, and I think that if I could ask them right now, they would tell you that one of the reasons why, for example, elementary school kids learn about shapes in kindergarten, and then shapes again in first grade, and then shapes again in second grade, and then shapes again in third grade, and then again in fourth grade, and pretty much every year all the way through high school geometry, you know, why don't they just learn it once? You know, efficiency. Well, one of the reasons is that people who have studied learning know that 
learning something in a cycle, kind of a spiral where you add a little bit each time actually reinforces learning in a way that learning it once just doesn't. I think God's goals are much like elementary school math curriculum. God actually wants to get the point across. And the best way to do that is not to say it once and then move on. My assumption here is that God, having, you know, created us, knows how we learn best. And so God inspires the editors of a book like Jeremiah, or of the Gospels for that matter, to tell us the message and then tell us again in a slightly different way and then tell us again and then again and again. Jeremiah is so repetitive so that we actually learn from it. But third and most important, the cyclical nature of Jeremiah's message is the message, at least part of it. Repetition is an essential part of what God is trying to say, not just how God is saying it. Because for one thing, you have been warned again and again and again, and you haven't listened. That is the message. In the verses we read before, you're to say to them, Yahweh has said this, if you don't listen to me by walking according to the teaching that I have set in front of you, listening to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I've been sending to you, sending them urgently, but you haven't listened, The book of Jeremiah is displaying, enacting, the countless warnings Israel has had. We get to experience as we read the countless warnings and see them go unheeded, and that's a central part of the message itself. But also, the cyclical nature embodies the basic logic of the prophetic ministry that I mentioned before. The repetitive warnings show us that God is not saying, If you slip up even a little bit, I am coming for you. One false move and you are dead to me. Jeremiah has been sounding the alarm for decades. God through the prophets has been begging for centuries for the people to turn back. And even after all that time, look what God says to Jeremiah. Stand in the courtyard of Yahweh's house and speak to all Judah cities. The people coming to bow down in Yahweh's house, speak all the words that I'm commanding you to speak to them. Don't omit a thing Perhaps they will listen and turn, each from his evil way, and I'll relent regarding the evil that I'm intending to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. The message of the prophets, the basic logic by which prophets operate, the whole purpose for God sending prophets in the first place is not to bring the message, you are all bad, you have abandoned God, and now God will abandon you. The fundamental logic of the prophets is, you have abandoned God, so turn around and it can all be forgiven. It's not too late. Please come home. We read a book like Jeremiah with all of its warning of destruction and we focus on the wrath of it all. And we miss what is actually the point. Grace. This is a crucial distinction in our understanding of God. Sin can always be forgiven. And the logic of the prophets is, it's still not too late. Otherwise, what would be the point of them coming at all? We see the repetition in Jeremiah because it is part of that message to us. This is who our God is. A God who, after centuries of trying to get people to turn back, centuries of offering forgiveness and being ignored, can still say, perhaps they'll listen this time and turn and I can forgive them. Sin can still be forgiven. Sin can always be forgiven. And God continues to hold on to that perhaps. Perhaps this time they'll come home. The point of all the death and destruction talk in Jeremiah is actually not to emphasize the death and destruction, but rather to emphasize all 
the missed off-ramps. When the people could have turned, could have come home, could have experienced grace. One of the core statements about God's nature in the Old Testament is this from Psalm 103. Worship Yahweh, my soul. All that is within me, worship God's holy name. Worship Yahweh, my soul, and do not ignore all of God's deeds. God is the one who pardons all your waywardness, who heals all your illnesses, who restores your life from the abyss, who decorates you with faithfulness and compassion, who satisfies you with good things, your youth renewed like the eagle. Yahweh performs faithful acts, decisive acts for all who are oppressed. God would make known God's ways to Moses, God's deeds to the Israelites. Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in steadfast, committed love. God would not contend with us forever. God would not hold on to it for all time. Not in accordance with our failures has God dealt with us. Not in accordance with our wayward acts has God given us good things because in accordance with the height of the heavens over the earth, God's steadfast, committed love has been strong for the people who revere God. In accordance with the distance from east to west, has God distanced our rebellions from us. In accordance with the compassion a parent shows their children, Yahweh has shown compassion to the people who revere God. How to square that beautiful statement of steadfast, committed love and compassion with the bloodthirsty threats in Jeremiah? I think if we actually pay attention to the core message of the prophets, what we will see is that those messages are one and the same. Sin can always be forgiven. We are always welcomed back, no matter how far from the relationship we fled. The cyclical nature of Jeremiah is this message. You have abandoned God, but it is not too late. It's still, after all this time and all these warnings, not too late. All sin can be forgiven. But then the final part of the message is this. But what can't be forgiven is refusing to turn around. God's way is hard. God knows that. And so when the people stray off the path, God's reaction is not to smite them, but to send prophet after prophet after prophet. And even in Jeremiah's day, hold out hope that perhaps this time they'll turn. Hey, it's okay that you strayed down the wrong path. That happens sometimes. But now is the time to listen to this warning and turn around. Maybe you didn't know before that you were on the wrong path, but now you do. So come on back. But God can't change that the path away from God leads away from God, leads only to death. And if the people don't listen to the warning, don't turn around, if they insist on continuing down that path, it'll lead where it leads. But God's hope, the whole point of the message of Jeremiah, the whole point in sending prophets in the first place is to say, that path that you're on leads where it leads, but it's never too late to turn around and walk back to me. So there it is. God is not like people, where we need to be afraid that if we slip up, it will all come crashing down and we'll find ourselves alone. God is steadfast, committed love, no matter what. And so when we read a hard, repetitive, sometimes frightening book like Jeremiah, let's not miss the core message that is there. Our God is waiting, hoping, no matter what we've done, 
or how far down the path we've walked, that we will perhaps this time turn around.